yeah, no, it's good. We need a third person. We need a third person. Okay. Yes. Yeah, we're, we're only halfway done. Okay. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Mixed Motherhood Podcast. Uh, today, I'm here with Nanai and our special guest, Sakura. Hi, Sakura. Hi, Sakura. Hi. Hi, Cookie. Hi, Nanai. Thank you so much for having me today. Thank you for joining us. How is the West Coast of Canada today? I'm from Kelowna, and uh, I would like to acknowledge that um, I live in the traditional unceded territory of the Silk Okanagan people. The weather's good. It's been really hot this fall, but yeah, mm-hmm. it's, I think it's a plus 23 today. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. Really? It's one oh, thing I miss about I'm... Kelowna, the weather. is so nice. <laughs> it's really, really nice. It's really nice. But you know what? Let me double check because I might be lying a little bit. I don't know. My <laughs> husband told me it's 23. Every morning I ask him, what's the weather today? And then he tells me. Um, so today is plus six to plus 23. There you go. Oh, okay. That's awesome. That's, awesome. That's mm-hmm. basically like summer weather for us here in the Atlantic mm-hmm. part of Canada. But yeah. Kelowna's always had nice weather. So, Sakura, tell us a little bit about yourself. So you have an interesting racial background. Is that correct? Mm. So tell (laughs) us a little bit about that. Okay. So I am Japanese Afro-Brazilian. My mother is Japanese and my father was Afro-Brazilian. And I was born in Brazil, Salvador, Bahia, Brazil. Uh, for those who don't know where um, about much about Salvador, um, it was where the first slavery, where the first slavery port was created in Brazil. So still now to this day, um, majority of people are African descendant. Mm-hmm. So that's my other side, and then I'm yeah. I was born in Brazil and I grew up in Japan and now I'm in Canada. So my my life is like one third Japan, one third Brazil, one third Japan, one third Canada. Nice. So how did your parents meet? Um, so my mother, she was a teacher and she went to Brazil to teach Japanese. She was sent by the government because there was a big Japanese community within Brazil. So she was teaching Japanese there, and I think that's how they met. I didn't even know that, that there was a Japanese community in Brazil. Mm-hmm. It's the biggest Japanese community outside of Japan. I don't know if wow. it's still the same, but when I was small, it was, yeah, it was that way. But in Salvador, after she married my father, um, they moved to Salvador, and that's, mm-hmm. yeah, there are not many Japanese there. Oh, and okay. so is it just you or do you have siblings? <clears throat> I have two siblings in the middle. So I have older sister who's in Japan and the younger sister who's in Japan. Mm-hmm. Oh, they decided to stay in Japan. Yeah, everyone stayed in Japan. Yeah. And That's I, what made I just got out. Canada. Mm. Um, so in Japan, Japan is a super monoculture, right? Um, so me having a little bit darker skin, it was always hard. So my older sister, she has fair skin. She's like Caucasian fair skin, but she has curl wavy hair. And I'm the middle and I have Japanese hair, which is straight black hair. But my skin tone is the darkest within the sibling. And then my younger youngest sister, she has Japanese skin tone and super curly hair. So we all oh, have wow. like a different feature. Yeah. But for me, yeah. the skin color was, was the, the hardest one growing up in mm-hmm. Japan. And what was that like? 
What was that like? So now Japan is a little bit different because this is like what thirty years ago and whatnot.、Mm-hmm. And I, where I was living, was a super small city. So they the, people haven't seen a lot of foreigners there. So you know, I was always like this foreigner kid, and I don't know. It was hard being picked on. Picked on is that how you say it? Pick, picked on.、Mm-hmm. Yeah.、Mm-hmm. Um, and just just、um, to explain a little bit of. Background of my mother, so she came from a very well-to-do family.、Uh, her family has rice fields. They,、uh, her mother and father, was like well-known in the town. So in Japan, traditionally, you marry someone in the same class, right? And again, this is a long time ago. I'm not saying that it's the same in Japan today.、Um, but then she decided to teach Japanese, and then she marries a colored person.、Mm-hmm. So her family. Of course, reacted and said, "Well, if you want to marry this black person、uh, or foreigner, then you're going to be disowned." So she was disowned, and then her intention was to stay in Brazil. She was not going to come back to Japan, but things didn't work out.、Um, different culture, different, different lot of things. So、yeah. my mother went back to Japan. He originally came with her, but being a black person in、mm-hmm. Japan was not easy, and not being able to speak the language, yada yada yada. And then from there, it was just really bad. So they are no longer together.、Mm-hmm. So for me, growing up in Japan was a little bit difficult, and、yeah. I always knew that I want to get out of Japan and be able to speak different language. And my Dream when I was little was to be a diplomat, so I knew that I had to speak more than three languages. So I was like, okay, time eighteen. Okay, let's get out. So I just came to Canada, and、uh, here I am. Nice. Oh man, nice. that is a wild story. And I mean, I've I've known Sakura for a long time, and this is the first time I'm hearing the full story. So I'm、mm. I'm just very amazed and surprised. And what I know about Brazil, which is like very obviously basic, is that. Um, race plays a a big role in society、mm. there, big time, and <laughs> people are classified.、Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's the right word, but based on how they look. And so,、mm. for me, as a foreigner looking into that kind of society, I find that very interesting、mm. because、um, it almost appears like it's it's. It's not、uh, necessarily in a in a bad way, but it's a way of identifying where you belong. And in this podcast, we talk a lot about like belonging, and you know, how do we classify our children? How do we classify、uh, ourselves, and, and that sort of thing?、Mm-hmm. And I think it's very is very distinct、mm-hmm. in, in Brazil. Is is that is that correct? I I don't know much about Brazil because I was there、um, until、yeah. I was eight. Um, but one thing, though, that I would say is, so after coming to Canada, I usually identify myself as Japanese Brazilian. But whenever I say Brazilian,、um, I could see something in people's face, like, "Oh, you're Brazilian. Oh, okay, you're Brazilian. You have darker、mm-hmm. skin. I thought you'd be from Philippines or somewhere else." And and then I had to explain everything. So、mm-hmm. from a couple of years ago, I started identifying myself as Japanese Afro Brazilian because、um, I I do feel emotionally tied to that culture,、uh, 
um, in Salvador. I still talk to my grandma. She's the only one that, that can understand my very broken Portuguese. <laughs> um, so yeah, I started identifying myself as Japanese Afro-Brazilian and now I feel more like, okay, that's, that's who I am instead of mm -hmm. just Japanese Brazilian. Yeah. So yeah. I love it. Okay. So your story is fascinating to me because, and it's because there's so many things going on at the same time. Um, mm. And I want to start with your mom because she probably mm. had a lot of um, trouble trying to figure out what she was going to do. She has mm -hmm. these three children with this yeah. man that she probably genuinely loved and they oh, probably totally. really loved each other. And then mm -hmm. she's realizing, okay, what about my family? Um, mm -hmm. And now my children look different from mm -hmm. each other. Not, no, you know, <laughs> never mind from the people around them, from each other, they look different. Um, mm -hmm. They don't look anything like their father or myself. So what's the mm -hmm. plan? And she goes back to Japan and now she's, mm -hmm. okay. So now mm -hmm. I no longer have my husband. Mm -hmm. I don't, and I'm not sure if they, if she made up with her family or not, but she no longer, maybe she didn't have that um, for a while. And then she's got these three children that look nothing mm -hmm. like her mm. and she's going how am I supposed to do this how am I supposed mm. to do this and like that in itself is a whole story um in how Definitely. she managed to overcome everything that she went through to get to raise you three right you ever talk about it um it's it's a very sensitive topic um mm -hmm. among me and my siblings and my mother and one thing I could say is that there are a lot of things that we have not overcame and definitely my mother, I think she did everything that she could with everything that she had. She had. Um, because going back to Japan, you're right. She didn't have that support that she used to have. And growing up as, you know, like a wealthy person without knowing that she was wealthy. And now she's back in Japan. She had to start all over. And all of a sudden, we don't have money. Because in Brazil, we were okay, too. We were, mm -hmm. like, upper middle class. We were doing fine. And then he decided, my father decided that it's better for the siblings to be raised in Japan because it's safer, better education. He thought that it, there would be more opportunities for us. But then what I guess he didn't see was how difficult it was going to be because of our racial background. My mother mm -hmm. knew that. She knew it was going to be difficult. And that's why she she had no intention of going back. But then there we were. We went back to Japan. And originally he came with us too. Uh, and very quickly then, I guess, he, he realized, you know, things are not going to work out and things did not work out. From there, it was really bad. He, he started drinking and my mother had to work all the time. Meanwhile, the three kids had to learn Japanese and, you know, we, yeah, it was not easy. But again, I feel like she did the best that she could with everything what that she, she had. had. Um, so when the deny told me about this podcast, I had a, a lot of thoughts in my head because mm -hmm. this is like intergenerational for my yes. family, for me and my mm -hmm. mother. And now that I have my own son raising him in Canada, you know, sometimes I feel like what would it be like to raise him in Japan? Because my husband, he is Canadian, but mm -hmm. he's, he's blood-wise, he, blood he's fully Japanese. His mother and father 
a Japanese. So he's Japanese. So he looks more Japanese than me, totally. Um, but he's Canadian. He grew up in Canada. So he has his own story of growing up as an Asian person. And he came mm. from a small city where most people were Caucasian. So he has his own story. Mm. And then I have my own story. <laughs> and then we came together. And now we have a son. So it's, yeah, it's, I don't even know where to start or how to unravel it. <laughs> Me neither. I'm just like, there's so much here. And I mean, I, I, and you're right. And to be fair, to, to play devil's advocate for your father, not knowing him, but I feel like he had the right intention. He had the mm -hmm. right intention because truly Jap Japan probably would have given you guys the best um, education and, and given mm -hmm. you more opportunities. And so he was looking forward and thinking of his children, um, just not realizing the immediate uh, mm -hmm. danger for lack of a better word. Right. Yeah. It's hard without understanding the culture. Right, because yes. both of you were born in Zimbabwe, you know what Zimbabwe is like. But let's say that someday a person comes and be like, "I think this is how Zimbabwe is. Let's move to Zimbabwe without really knowing mm -hmm. what really it means to live there as a different person." Mm -hmm. You know, I, I feel like it's it's very difficult for an outsider to well, to even, even for us. Mm -hmm. well, like even now, like we Cookie and I have spent our whole adult lives in Canada. We mm -hmm. have never had to work and support a family in Zimbabwe. So there is also that disconnect. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, when your family moved, I mean, Japan is such a, a distinct culture. And yeah, it's also, um, again, outsider looking in, it also seems like a culture that is very much um, untouched by mm -hmm. Um, the rest of the world. So, mm -hmm. for example, for us, um, even though we grew up in an African country, um, the way that we were raised was very much Western, right? Mm -hmm. Our education, our language, mm -hmm. pop culture, um, beauty standards, most of that stuff was dictated based on like Western culture, mostly mm -hmm. like British culture. Um, mm -hmm. So, it wasn't that much of a transition when we moved here. But I can imagine for you, I mean, you're moving to the other side of the world to a culture that is so completely different. Mm. Um, what was it like being in school um, or just, you know, trying to become more Japanese, I guess? Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a really a good way to put it, what it's like to become Japanese. Um, my personality was like, I was very Brazilian. I was like... You know, when you think of carnival, that was my personality. <laughs> I wanted to dance all the time. I wanted to dance samba all the time. I was very loud. And in Brazil, it's okay to be loud. It's okay to have a personality. And it, Japan is, and and this is just my experience. I'm oh, not yeah. talking about oh, Japanese people in general at all. This is my experience. Um, but it, being a monoculture I think the unspoken rule in Japan is that everyone does the same thing in school, right? You don't ask many questions to teachers. You do what you're told. You you shouldn't stand out much. Um, and one example that I can give you is my art project. I had one art project, and I guess my art was completely different from what it showed on a textbook because in textbook said okay today you're gonna play this you're gonna do this this is the sample and my 
Finnish art was completely different, and I got the lowest grade because it was too unique. So that I always think of that as how my experience was like um, being、mm-hmm. too unique, and so it was hard suppressing that side of myself, trying to figure out how to fit in, not just outside wise, like not just skin color wise, but personality wise. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.、Um, but then eventually. You know, I I got used to it, and I love Japan very much. Whenever I go back to Japan for work, I feel like, yay! This is I can eat this, I can eat that. I understand all the language. But to be honest with you, sometimes I just pretend like I don't speak Japanese when I'm there because it's easier. Because people just see me, and immediately I don't look like Japanese person. So it's easier for me just to speak in English and pretend like I don't know what they're saying, because then I don't have to explain the whole thing. They they are they are amazed when I speak Japanese. They're like, "Whoa, you do not look Japanese, but so, you speak so much." This、Japanese. is so fascinating because when <laughs> I look at you,、um, and I think we've had this conversation before, but when I look、mm. at you. I see a Japanese woman、mm-hmm. in front of me. Yeah,、um, I think there are aspects of you that are very racially ambiguous, but、mm-hmm. it it also really reinforces in me how how you said monoculture, like how how much Japan is like that, and、mm-hmm. everything needs to look the same. That's really interesting、mm-hmm. that you you say that. Um, mm-hmm. So now with your son,、um, mm-hmm. you mentioned that your son is mostly Japanese,、um, correct, and looks mostly Japanese.、Mm-hmm. Would you say that? That's interesting.、Or? I think it depends on who's looking at him. Yes,、um, like I think it, when he goes to daycare, people think, "Oh, yeah, he looks Asian." Right, but when I go see Japanese people, he doesn't look Japanese. So he looks a、right、lot、away. like you. I have to say, yeah, <laughs> yeah. his quarter Afro Brazilian.、Mm-hmm. So it's it's depending on where we are. Yeah. So I think majority of the time, most of the time in Canada, he'll be seen as Asian.、Mm-hmm. But if we talk to Asian people, then they are not going to see him as Asian. No. Wow, that's interesting. So, do you um? Okay, so because there's so many cultures, well, not so many cultures. You so your main one that you'd be teaching him or raising him on would be Japanese. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, because my husband he, he speaks、It's、Japanese.、Japanese. Um, so at home we try to speak Japanese all the time, so、okay. he would catch that that、mm-hmm. um that language. Mm-hmm. But how old is he? He likes speaking. He's five. He's five、okay. now, and he likes speaking in English. Of course, he used to be in the same daycare classes as my daughter. So、yeah. they're besties.、Um, that's interesting. So at five years old, do you think、mm. that he has、um, an idea or, or a concept of what his background is? Have you had that conversation with him? Has he asked you、um, mm-hmm. any yeah, questions we, like that? We had some conversation,、um, but then at the same time, like for me, I don't want him to be super conscious of about his background either. So the balance is very hard, I would say, 
And my husband, he's doing his master's um, in social work right now. And diversity is one of the things that he's passionate about. And I'm also doing my master's in in education, social justice. So we're like, okay, we want to educate him and be aware of the social structure out there. But then at the same time, how much do we teach him? How much do we share information? Mm -hmm. Uh, That's that's a struggle I'm having. Well, I shouldn't say struggle, challenge. Yeah, because you want him to also discover things on his own right? Mm -hmm. And then come to you with the questions to be able to feed him some information. But I think, because that is a good, that is a struggle. That's a struggle I have. And we've had this Mm -hmm. conversation as well before on another podcast. It's a, it's like, there's a fine line. You have to be careful in how much information you're giving them Mm -hmm. because then you might be creating a sort of bias where you don't Mm -hmm. want, you want them to just kind of be open and receive Mm -hmm. what they receive. And then you Mm -hmm. you teach them as it goes. Mm -hmm. So it is a true challenge. Um, Yeah, you're right. Yeah, for sure. And sometimes he, my husband, he talks about, uh, is it okay to say white in this podcast? (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All right. So sometimes, you know, we would be having discussion and my husband would be like, so for white people would be this and that and this and be like, can we just say Caucasian so my hus- my son doesn't start speaking like we do? Like white, black, Asian, yellow. You know, like I don't want him to yeah. talk that way me and my husband does. So I try to be very conscious about language at home. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that's a difficult. <laughs> it is. It is it, difficult. Yeah. Because you two understand each other. Your husband, you and your husband understand each other and you understand what you're talking about and you understand mm-hmm. the context. But exactly. if if he's listening, he's not understanding mm-hmm. the context. He's just no. picking up the words, right? Yeah. Exactly. And then from there, I think that's where unconscious bias will start happening exactly. within him. Right. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. How did you and your husband meet? Oh, this is my uh I love this this um <laughs> this question. My husband doesn't like it when I talk about it, but I love it so much. I'll try to make it as short as possible. So I was in Japan. So after I graduated from university, I I went to university here in Canada. I went back to Japan um, because there was so much happening within the family. And I wanted to be connected with my sisters dealing with all the issues that we had, including identity issues. Yeah. So I went back to Japan and I was teaching English. Um, and there is a, there was a bar in where we met and all the foreigners would go to the same bar because it wasn't a big city, all the English teachers and one that's not Japanese. So on Saturday, I went there with my friend and there was two guys sitting and I became friend with the other guy first. We were just like talking and there was this guy that doesn't talk at all. And in my mind, I was like, why doesn't this guy talk at all? (laughs) And that was my husband. And um, at one point, so days passed. And one point I was talking to the other guy. So Trevor, his name was Trevor. Um, Trevor said he's going traveling somewhere. So I said, oh, do you want me to hang out with your friend? Because I think um, he lives in a more remote area. Um, Can you give him my phone number? Trevor tells me, oh, I already asked that question, Sakura. And he said, no, he doesn't need your phone number. (laughs) And Trevor told me this. And I was like, how dare him saying no to my phone number? 
And I was young too, right? I was like full of ego and everything. And I was like, no one says no to my number. So I got his number from Trevor. And I called him and said, hi, um, this is Sakura. I heard that you don't need my number, but I got your number. And from there, I was like, you know what? This guy really doesn't see that I'm gorgeous and interesting and fun. I'm going to make him fall in love with me. So I called him every single day from that for straight 30 days. Can you believe that? My God, a little bit of obnoxious. So every single day I called him for 30 days. And I would just call him to have a short conversation. And towards the end, there's nothing to talk about, right? So I started Mm -hmm. talking about bees and caterpillars and like, I don't know what I was thinking. And on the 30th day, I thought, okay, you know what? I did my best. He's clearly not interested in me. He never calls me. So I was like, okay, I'm going to stop today. So I stopped calling him. The next day, he started calling me. And that was the start. (laughs) (laughs) The story is phenomenal because I just feel like that persistency, I wonder what he was thinking, what was going through his mind. And every day when you call... I know, but, but I you know, know what it's... though? He was answering the call, so that was exactly yeah. right. He was answering the call. Yeah, and he told me later on that he was interested in, in me, like while we were, um, you know, talking on the phone. But to me, I thought it was just me calling. But yeah, yeah you're right. He was answering the phone, and then yeah, because yeah. he could just blocked your number after the first time you called. But he was taking your <laughs> calls every single day for thirty days. <laughs> yeah, he was, and I think. Um, we were hanging out like towards the 30th day he came to my place just to hang out just to watch a movie and at the end I said hey do you want to stay and he said no I'm okay and then he just left I'm like wow he's really not interested in me but he was just a gentleman yes oh my this poor guy that's great that's awesome that's so awesome and then you guys moved here to Canada together oh Oh, no you said you grew up here Sorry, that's a very important part. I completely forgot to tell you that. Okay, so then we started dating in Japan. Um, We dated for probably two years or so. And then he said, okay, now I'm going back to Canada. And I told him, well, he knew that that's where I studied, how much I love Canada. And then I just invited myself. I said, okay, great. I'll I'll come with you. (laughs) And then we moved to Canada. (laughs) Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's oh my gosh. Thing, <laughs> and one thing I didn't know before we came to Canada, he, he talked to my mother. He he said he has intention of marrying me. Is oh. that okay? So he did all of that in background. Oh, that's so, sweet. That's so, so sweet. sweet. Oh me, my not gosh. that sweet. It was like, I'm no. coming with you. <laughs> We're going. I don't care. We're going. <laughs> so you, you two have very interesting um, backgrounds, very different personalities um very true how has that manifested itself in your uh parenting of your son Mm -hmm. like do you Mm -hmm. find that you have similar way of parenting or is your way of parenting different from his i would say we have the same parenting style because he was second generation he's second generation Mm -hmm. canadian japanese and i'm also you know i i didn't feel fitting i'm kind of second generation too in that sense Mm -hmm. so we both 
have the same idea um, of a parenting and try to have my child surrounded with as many cultures as possible. Um, and one example would be like uh, picture books. Uh, a lot of books that I would say we, we find are very white-based, mm-hmm. right? We don't see a lot of colors um, when it comes to picture books. So we try to find picture books that are more, that will present more, that they are, you know, different kids out there. It's not just the one skin color. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we both agree on that and just, um, whenever, so for work, I, I'm a recruiter, so I go to different countries for work. <coughs> whenever I go to different countries, I pick a picture book for my son, um, because the story itself is different in the, in the each yeah. country and each culture. Um, so yeah, we, we have a similar, parenting similar style, idea. That's awesome. Yeah. Would you say you do you see a lot of your Brazilian kind of style coming in at all? Yeah, you feel like you have a little bit of that. He's got that little bit of fiery in him as well. <laughs> he really does. He really does. <laughs> so because my most of my childhood I spent in Brazil, that's mm-hmm. what I know. And that was a happy time for me, family-wise. You know, I had my grandma, my aunt, my uncles, everyone. Everyone was so open. Um, so I would say... I try to do that more with him. Um, I'm here alone in terms of my own family, but my husband has his mom and dad and his siblings. So we try to be open as much as possible um, because I think Japanese way would be a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't they, know. They'd be a little bit more strict, you think? They'd be more like... Um, mm-hmm. They have the the structure that you might want to. Yeah. I mean, you want to keep the structure, but you want to also let him have a little bit of. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can agree with that. Yeah. That's really great. That's good. Mm-hmm. Is there anything about being a mother that you think? Um, you you consciously told yourself you want to do differently um, than mm-hmm. maybe the experience you had as a child. Mm-hmm. For example, when I became a mother, I really wanted to be conscious about teaching my children um, how to deal with conflict. Because mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that when I was growing up with my older sister and my younger brother, that's something that we were never really taught how to navigate as children. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so when we had fights, um, we didn't really know necessarily like how how to make up well. Like I, I don't think our parents ever really guided us through that kind of conflict. And so when mm-hmm. I became a mother, I was like, you know, I want my my children to be able to you know, have healthy conflicts, but also understand mm-hmm. that you can make up after you have mm-hmm. an argument. And this mm-hmm. is how you say, I'm sorry. And this mm-hmm. is how you say things that are you're not going to regret later, like mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have any mm-hmm. similar experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, I would say um, because of my experience, like growing up after my family moved to Japan, 
I was not allowed to speak Portuguese. And I was not allowed to... There was a lot of things that we were not allowed to do because my parents, they wanted us to adopt as quickly as possible, right? So in that sense, I feel that I had a lot of internalized oppression within me saying, okay, I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't be too Brazilian. I should be more Japanese. And and that in itself, the internalized oppression was very difficult. And that's something that I still find difficult um, today to try to be okay with who I am. So I'm trying to be conscious about that with my son, that I don't want him to think, ooh, I shouldn't eat sushi. I shouldn't speak in Japanese in public. I shouldn't do that and this, that. And there was there was a, a person that talked about panopticon. Do you know what panopticon is? Mm-hmm. A little bit, yeah. Panopticon. Yeah, so panopticon, and I, I have my book with me because I really <laughs> wanted to talk about this. Um, so the panopticon is a model for jail. And I'm just going to read one part of the book, and this is from Is Everyone Really Equal by Oslam Sensoy and Robin D'Angelo. And we can link it in the show notes for everybody yeah. okay. who's listening. Perfect, perfect. Um, they talk about self-policing. Because that policing? Policing? Um, policing, yeah. It says, this model produced a type of self-policing, a self-imposed mechanism for control and supervision, and panopticon is is the a type of jail that someone created that uh, guards are always in the middle, and all the people, the prisoners, all around it, but they cannot see when the uh, the guards are looking at them, so they always feel like they're being watched. So they search self policing. And they're always very conscious of their behavior. And that's the idea of Panopticon. So the the prisoners then becomes fearful of the threat of the ever-watching eye of authority. Not knowing when that eye will be turned on him, he begins to monitor himself in order to avoid penalty. And this structure of surveillance produces a comforting and passive prisoner. So I feel that I have that in me. I feel like I'm always being watched. Because that's how I grew up in Japan, always being watched. I have to be careful. And so here in Canada, then, you know, like in Kelowna, um, there are not too many diversities here. And I'm consciously watching if someone's watching me when I go into a store. Is someone going to think that I am stealing something? Is someone going to think? And I don't want my son to become like that. Mm-hmm. So. Going back to your point to deny, um, for my son, I am not restricting his behavior much. And he will discover himself, you know, mm-hmm. in society, what structures out there, what what it means in terms of power and oppression. Mm-hmm. But I don't want to impose that on him, saying, hey, you have to watch this and that and this and that. Yeah. And I would yeah. say one good thing is that he has both me and my husband who con- always talk about this. We 
and we just hope that we are guiding him well enough. But I don't know. I don't think anybody knows if they're guiding their children (laughs) well enough, but I think that you have really good intentions and Mm -hmm. you've obviously thought a lot about this. And I think this is one thing that we've talked about on this podcast is that when you are a parent who's raising a child with a dual identity, or in your case, if if you are that person, um, you're always going to doubt the decisions that you make in that journey through parenthood, because there's certain aspects of your child's experience that you're not going to be able to identify with. Mm -hmm. And I mean, even though your child is, um, has a dual identity um, Mm -hmm. and you experienced that as a child, there are still elements of that that mm-hmm. you may not understand, um, whether it's because he's navigating the world as a man um, mm-hmm. or um, the fact that you are in a country like Canada um, mm-hmm. that doesn't have one uh, monolithic cultural identity, I guess, if you want to call it mm-hmm. that way. So, I mean, I, I, get, I feel doubt all the time um, about whether or not I am making the right decisions. And we had uh, a a great guest um, a few weeks ago who talked about like not um, I believe it was Fringina who said that uh, we have to try not to impose our trauma mm-hmm. uh, or, or live our trauma through our children. Like we have to, mm-hmm. you know, be able to identify when there are things in us that trigger us, um, mm-hmm. but also just let our children navigate those experiences Mm-hmm. themselves mm-hmm. and it, i think that's that's part of it but it it is hard to to not it doubt is. yourself like every single day <laughs> yeah. and that's um that was a powerful i just have to say that word okay you have to say the word for me because i want to say it put oh yeah let me see let, let me look at my book right here um <laughs> and this was by a michael michael focal he that was his analysis about in, internalized oppression cool. and, yeah um, so that was Panopticon. Panopticon. I feel like a lot of, okay, so in terms of, first of all, the visual that I had is kind of scary of not knowing when somebody's looking. And then as you Mm -hmm. were talking, I'm like, I feel like we live this every day as women, as uh, women of color, as mothers, as um, wives, as, you know, you're constantly wondering if, okay, my child's going to scream in the store. I have to self-police to make sure that I control whatever emotion that I'm feeling at this moment. If I'm frustrated with her screaming, how do I make sure that I'm not going to be how I would be if I was at home, how I would deal with this. So now I have to Mm self-police, pull it together. What do I do in this situation? Okay. And then you're thinking about at work, for example, um, somebody, you want to say something and I personally experienced this as a, as a person of color, woman, person of color in, in my job, my previous job, um, we're just speaking up, just saying, mm-hmm. mm, I don't know if that's the right way to do that. Not being aggressive or anything. Mm-hmm. It's now like, it's looked at immediately. It was considered, well, she's an angry black woman, right? Yeah. But mm-hmm. I was not behaving in that way. And I didn't think mm-hmm. I was behaving mm-hmm. that way, but before I knew it, um, that, that was the perception. And then it was too late for me to then start policing. But why do I, why, I didn't feel like I needed to police, but now I'm like, yeah. every time I'm at work now, I'm conscious yeah. of it. I have to police yeah. myself. 
I have to police the way I talk, the way I present, whatever it is that I want to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, especially with parenting, because, you know, unlike every other aspect of our lives, our children um, open us up for judgment, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. every mother wants to think that they are doing the best that they can and they are producing a child who, you know, is a model to society. And the fear of judgment, I think, drives so much of like what we do. Like my yeah. my my oldest child just had her her class photos at school. And, you know, usually when I do my my daughter's hair, I ask her like what she has in mind. But then I was thinking, well, maybe I need to tone it down because it's a class photo and I don't want her to stand out. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, my, my child has very big, big hair. Um, I was like, Beautiful hey, hair. I just, I just don't want her to stand out. I don't want the teachers mm-hmm. to think, what are we going to do with this child with the big hair, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so you're constantly thinking about all of these things because you don't want to open yourself up to judgment through your children. Because yeah. it's hurtful. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I totally you get what you're watching. watching. You don't know who's watching. And exactly. And, but then are people watching or we just, that's in our heads. That's the other part I get confused about. Are people exactly. watching in my head, right? Exactly. And I think a part of the panopticon, this jail structure, was that there were uh, lights coming out of the tower. So when the prisoners look at the tower, the center of the tower, then it it it, it gets them blind because it's mm-hmm. so bright, mm-hmm. and they look at their cell. It's darkness. It's mm-hmm. like which way do we look? Do we look? Do we look outside and see if everyone's watching us because yeah. of the color we have? Are we mm-hmm. turning blind ourselves, or do we just look our like our own place? And mm-hmm. think all more internalized oppression things. Like I, I don't know. I don't that's know if I'm explaining it in. right, but, mm-hmm. but yeah, I get it. But that's where our our cultures come into play because depending on you know how you grew up culturally or how you were raised culturally, culturally, mm-hmm. you're able to navigate those things. And so mm-hmm. um, I believe in our last episode we we talked about like you know, being raised as an African girl, you're very conscious about your position in society. There is a very specific Mm -hmm. pathway that you have to take as a girl. And, you know, that culture of like being, uh, bearing the burden of like the world uh, or the household or the family is something that we carry with us still to this day, even Mm -hmm. though it may not necessarily be the reality, but you know, for example, um, I wasn't feeling very, I, I recently came back from a trip and I wasn't feeling very well. I, I think I must have caught a cold on, on the plane or something. And I just wanted to like lie in bed all day and, and sleep. But there was something in the back of my head that kept saying, you can't sleep all day. You mm-hmm. have children and a husband. Mm-hmm. Even though my husband was telling me to stay in bed. But because of the that culture... And the self-guilt, like, what are other people going to think? Yes. I'm taking this time for myself to self, like, mm-hmm. to all of that. So mm-hmm. it, it is a blinding light because it, it mm-hmm. even though you know better, that you know nobody cares, nobody can see in your house, nobody is going mm-hmm. to, you're not going to get in trouble for taking a day. <laughs> exactly, get mm-hmm. in trouble. <laughs> yeah, it's just, 
Because you know what? It's funny because this is how extreme it got. Because I was like, well, what if my child goes to school and said my mom slept all day? Yes. Mm -hmm. And I know Mm -hmm. it's unlikely that it would happen. But what if it happened? (laughs) What Mm -hmm. would the teacher think about me? You know, as a mother, I think uh, there uh, for us mothers, there's so much um, societal expectation that created through media or a a lot of things. We watch these things and we think, oh, this is how I should be. And if someone says something in that in that regard, then it's like, oh, see. Yes. Yeah. Ah, and then the self guilt starts. Mm-hmm. And I have one example of this, and then not ne- necessarily um, uh, connected with um, my racial background. So I mentioned that I'm a recruiter and I travel a lot for work. So when my son was six months old, I had to start being on the road. Mm-hmm. And my first trip was to Japan. Everywhere I went, if I said that I, I gave birth six months ago or if I have a baby, the first thing people would say was, who's looking after him? Why are you on the road? Why are you working? Uh, you know, all these things. And I'm already feeling guilty. Like he doesn't have another and, parent to look after. Yeah, <laughs> it's like it has, to be, it has to be mom all the time. Mm. And, and I asked my coworker who also... Um, had a baby and he had to go away. Well, he didn't have, you know what I mean. And he was away for one year and he came back. He started being on the road. When he came back to Canada, I asked him, I was like, did anyone ask you who's looking after your baby or anything? No single person, Mm -hmm. he said, asked him the question that I was asked all the time. Yeah. And it's so difficult as a working mother to feel that guilt. And not just working mother, any mother, to Mm -hmm. feel the guilt that you're already feeling and be told by other people. And people have good intentions, you know, most of the time. I Mm -hmm. believe that people are good, good, good people. But with even that good intention, if you are told many times, then you start you internalize it. Doubting yourself. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, oh no. <laughs> Am I doing it wrong? Am I I shouldn't be doing this and that and this and that. Mm-hmm, and that's yeah. so difficult. Because then you can't also talk to other people either. No. Right? Because because you're already sitting with this guilt in your heart and like um I'll give an example this weekend. So my, my ex-husband has my children this weekend, and I realized why I'm always so tired when they come back to me, because really I should be resting. No, I should be taking mm. the time to do some things, run some errands, do whatever. And then I realized that I feel guilty for resting mm. even when I don't even have them. And so mm. I have a really hard time sleeping because I'm imagining I should be able to hear them breathe and move and I should be absolutely, and I'm I'm so exhausted by the next day because I haven't slept. And then I'm like, okay, well, they'll be back in a couple of days and I'm going, I need to do something. I need to rest because I need to be able to take care of them. But I'm so wrapped with guilt, like I should not be sleeping. I should be mm-hmm. knowing where they are, what they're doing. Meanwhile, they're with their father. Why am I worried about where yeah. they are? You know what I mean? But I'm yeah, so like, worried about if I sleep, then I'm I'm not a good mom. But they're not here. Mm-hmm. I didn't mm-hmm. be a good mom if I just cleaned up and, and made sure that when they came back, I was rested. But it, it's so difficult for me to to 
conceptualize that. And I finally realized mm-hmm. this weekend has been two years of doing this. And finally this weekend, I was like, this is a strange way to live. This is a very strange mm-hmm. way to live. Right? Yeah. And I mean, we haven't had the the fathers on the podcast yet. Hopefully we'll do that soon. But I, I think this is a problem that is inherently unique to women um, because of all of the things that we've mentioned, that societal expectation of, of us mm-hmm. and what we should be doing to raise the children and, um, you know, build up that standard. So I don't know. I would be very interested to have this conversation with, you know, some of some of the, the dads to, to find out mm-hmm. some of the things that mm-hmm. they experience. With. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just going going back to um, what I said that it's it's not so much connected to my racial background. Now that I think of it, um, I had one mom asking me, "Is this the Brazilian way of raising?" um the children wow because she was just she was just really i guess for her it was like why are you going back to work when he was still small and you're on the road all the time and you're letting your husband look after him who's a wonderful husband but is this is this the brazilian way and that was a japanese mother asking me that japanese mother who is in canada because mm. I guess to her, it didn't make much sense. sense. And yeah. the only thing that she could make sense was that, okay, Sakura has a different racial background. It must be the Brazilian thing. Yeah. And that was very hurtful. That was very, very hurtful. Yeah. I can't imagine it must, mm. would have been because she dismissed you as a person and just looked at exactly. you as a mother, right? You were a mother first. <laughs> and it's like, but I'm also a human being. And these mm-hmm. things that I have to do as a human being to, to mm-hmm. look after my family. And this is part of mm-hmm. looking after my family is me working. Because you know, mm-hmm. it's not like you were out there working and not getting paid, or you're just out there having fun. You were working. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but those mm-hmm. negative things can be quite quite damaging i had a i have a friend who she just forgot to put her children's lunchbox in the school bag you know you're rushing in the morning Mm -hmm. and you just forget (laughs) to do it now instead of calling her instead of the school calling her and saying we noticed that your child didn't have their lunchbox today they sent her a letter saying um are you struggling to provide food Mm -hmm. for your child if you are struggling to provide food for your child, these are some res- like resources essentially. And I think in their way, they thought they were being helpful. Helpful, mm-hmm. yeah. But my friend was so insulted; she yeah. just couldn't believe that the first thing that came to their head was this woman is black; her children have no lunch. It's obviously mm-hmm. an issue of mm. like finances yeah. or or money. So she. Yeah responds to the school and says you know i i noticed you sent me this information i just wanted to let you know that i i I forgot i didn't even know that i hadn't packed the lunch why didn't you call me um you know to to confirm i could have left work and taken the lunch to school and it was the first time it had ever happened and the response was like well we send we send these kind of messages to any kids we feel are are neglected and that kind of just like escalated. Mm-hmm. And she said, but you're making a judgment yes, based exactly. on Jumping one yeah, yeah, on one thing that you one observation that you 
have have seen without actually trying to find out what's what happened. actually happened. Yeah. What's happening? Did you even talk to my child? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. So and I, I always have to ask myself too, like, is this happening to me because the way I look, or would in this case would mm -hmm. the school reacted the same way if mm -hmm. my skin color was different yeah exactly and i think there are times where you genuinely want to ask that but then you and we're going to talk a little bit more about this in in our new story but i think that you also feel like am i going to make things worse if i call people out on their yes. behavior or should I just like, this is not the hill I'm going to, to die on today. I'm just going to continue. And it's weird because it's gaslighting and it makes you feel yeah. like you're the crazy person for reacting mm -hmm. in, in that way. And so yeah. I had to basically walk her down from the ledge and say, look, they probably, it, it probably wasn't meant not like a target against you. They just made an assumption that this child has no lunch Maybe people are having a hard time providing that. But I, I agreed with her that, you know, people really need to look at the impact of their actions yes. and how they can be received by, by other people. Um, that's, I think as, as a, a racial mother, um, something that probably most of us experience or see, witness, is that there is a lack of uh, representation. Mm -hmm. in yes. where we are sending our children to, right? Yes. In this case, school. Um, are there a lot of teachers that look like my son? Are there a lot of people that making decisions that look like my son? Mm -hmm. And most likely, no. They mm -hmm. are the ones that are in power. And that's why they make some assumption or judgment, which can be harmful than helpful. Yes. Mm -hmm. the, yeah, lack of representation, it, it's very hurtful. And you have to and tell yourself, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say the lunch thing. I've often, not often, because now it sounds like I'm a terrible mother, but I've... <laughs> <laughs> You're not a terrible mother. <laughs> I have, I have forgotten lunch, you know. I have given um, my one that goes to school full days, my kindergarten, my ki I, in kindergarten, I gave her my little one's lunch, which doesn't have lunch. It just has snacks. So she had no mm -hmm. lunch for that day. Um, but I, I honestly, I have never received a letter, but the guilt, I just, and just the feeling overwhelming was just, I wonder what they think. What did, what yeah. do they think that's happened here? And my daughter just comes home and says, Oh mom, you gave me the wrong lunch. And then I'm like, Oh my word, what they must think of me. Like you didn't have anything. You must be starving. And I wonder what they thought. Like, oh, this woman's just feeding her whatever she can find in her house. And it, it's very, very, it's not traumatizing because it's a heavy word, but it is very, um, it, it takes a, it, a huge impact on you for that day, for that month, mm -hmm. whatever it is. And you constantly, and then I'm conscious, oh my gosh, whose lunch did I put it? And I'm checking the bags three times over now. And it's, it just takes a toll on you. And then to have somebody, if somebody had sent me a letter like that, then I'm game over. It's game over for me. I'm fully well, in an anxious panic all the time, right? It's like when I send my kids to somebody's house or if they're if we're going out to the grocery store or anything like that, the first thing I think about is, do they look presentable? Mm. 
and hundred percent. Yeah, and yeah. it's it's not like I care. Like I'm still very new to the city. I don't. I hardly know very many people mm-hmm. here. What are the chances that I'm going to run into somebody that I know at my little corner grocery store? But because I know that there is a perception mm-hmm. that you know mm-hmm. my little mixed race children. If they look scruffy or untidy or it's a, it's a value judgment on me as a parent. Whereas, you know, if they're with my husband, I don't even think he cares. I feel like in the summer, (laughs) he's taken our son to the grocery store just in his swim shorts and uh, his little Crocs, you know, with like uh, just a a shirt that he was wearing when he was eating like watermelon or drinking juice or something. Like he doesn't think about those things. But it's different when I'm with them because I'm thinking they probably, if if my child misbehaves, if he runs to the store, um, if my my daughter's hair is not tied properly, uh, if her skin is not moisturized, people are going to make that value judgment on me as a person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. you think, again, the panopticon, people are looking at you. Yeah. 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 One of, um, I had someone commenting saying, uh, why do you always tie something with how you look or your skin color like you don't have to always tie everything just because the way you look um and this person was white and i had to sit on it and be like hmm and the answer for me was that i am always thinking about it because that that is my experience and every single day and anything that happens to me Mm -hmm. of course i'm going to tie that with the way i look Mm-hmm. Because that's how I am living every single day, being yes. conscious, being mm-hmm. like, if I do this, so it, it's very difficult because as you said, you know, then I, um, just taking our, our child, the children yeah. to the grocery store, that itself, it's like, okay, we are out here. Mm-hmm. People are going to look at yes. us mm-hmm. in certain way. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that we are going to think is, oh no. Is it because of the way I look? Yes. Yeah. And, you know, that's the reality and that's the everyday life. And that's that's how, that's how we're living. And I was I was just thinking, and this is really, and I don't know, I'm hard on myself for this because my little one loves to wear princess dresses and she loves to wear the boy, big ball gown dresses. And that's what she wants to go out in. And I'm like, no, you can't wear that. Like, you, you don't need to wear that right now. Like, I don't, because everybody else is in, like, just is in the middle of the heat in summer. My other two are in shorts and a t-shirt and she wants to wear this big dress or her Elsa dress. And I'm just like, you I can't, like, you can't go out like, like that. And I've been through that. <laughs> I feel really bad because she really should wear whatever the heck she wants. It really shouldn't matter what she wears. Like, let's go. But it's that value judgment That's cookie. the thing. It's, That's the thing. It's people are going to make certain assumptions. And, I mean, we talked about, like, our skin color being, you know, basically how we determine a lot of things because we're hyper-visible. You know, yeah. we are not the... I, for example, as a dark-skinned black person, I can't just like walk into a grocery store in pajamas and hope that nobody no, will notice no, me because I'm hyper-visible. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. when you are hyper-visible, you, you're very self-conscious about mm-hmm. the way that you present to society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. also there is the other layer of race and class, Right. You want yep. you don't want people to think that you are 
associated with. Yeah, like you're, yeah, yeah, like you don't fit in, right? Like I live in the <laughs> suburbs. So everybody here is like wearing Lululemon and like sweaters <laughs> and, you know, they have their Tim Hortons coffee in the groceries, you know, like that sort of thing. Like if I just showed up, like, because we all have those days where we just don't want to put any effort in, but I would still mm-hmm. be hyper visible. It doesn't matter what yeah. I'm wearing. And so mm-hmm. to take away that negative energy without that judgment, you want to fit in. And, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, when I look at my children, I also worry, like, am I manifesting that in them? Like telling them that they need Mm. to fit in Mm -hmm. to take part in the society? Like that sounds terrible, right? Mm -hmm. It goes against perpetuating. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It goes everything Mm -hmm. that against everything that we are trying to teach our children about informing Mm -hmm. their own identity and being comfortable in their skin and um, you know, just being able to move through society as they are. But we are mm-hmm. doing the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, me and my husband, going back to parenting, we we sometimes have this discussion of, oh, do we need to buy this for our son? Because for me, I am hyper aware. As you mentioned, you know, the way my son looks, the way he's, is he dressed up okay? So now I'm hyper conscious that sometimes I go overboard. I buy good things for him. I buy... Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes brands, because I'm like, okay, you need to wear all these things. Mm-hmm. So then we are not seen as a certain way. And I don't mm-hmm. tell him that, but I know I'm doing that. Yes. Consciously, you know, I'm like, okay, no, we have to dress up good. I have to have my Starbucks coffee so yeah. other moms <laughs> think that I'm doing okay. <laughs> you know, like I'm doing that consciously so people don't look at me a certain way, but I'm doing that to myself mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. You know, you like just, I'm going overboard. Yeah. You just actually reminded me this this weekend, my, my oldest, she started soccer. Um, and in the email that they send to parents, because it's soccer for six-year-olds, right? not really taking it very seriously. They say that you don't need to buy like the right, like proper Mm -hmm. soccer cleats Mm -hmm. and stuff. So I just took her in just her sparkly trainers that she takes to school and stuff. I get there. Every other kid is wearing (laughs) soccer cleats. They have like the shin guards. They are in the proper kit. And luckily, you know, my daughter doesn't really care because she she liked the way that she looked. But the immediate thought I had was everybody's going to look at me like I can't afford to buy my kid the proper Mm -hmm. kit. And they're going to be high. She's going to be hyper visible. Yes. Like Mm -hmm. on top of already being hyper visible. And it's crazy because I know that that's not the expectation that was told to me. But guess what I'm doing tomorrow? I'm going to the mall. (laughs) And because I don't want her to stand out, right? I want her to Mm -hmm. be like everybody. And I don't want people to be looking and saying, oh, that poor girl. She's not you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Even though I'm sure that's not what's happening. (laughs) It doesn't really matter. But like at the same time, like at the same time, though, I have decided over the last few weeks or days that I'm going to let my daughter wear whatever if she wants to wear a bow gown to daycare have at her at this point mm-hmm. because i it's not a heel that i think we need because i don't want to squish 
that part of her because she is very extra. She's an extra yeah. child and she loves to be extra. <laughs> and that's her so personality. Her be, yeah, and that's her personality. And I don't want to squish that out of her. So I'm going to let her be extra. Mm-hmm. You want to wear your fancy shoes and big old bow and you have your drink. Have at her. Have at her. And <laughs> my son, you know, my son loves tractors. I don't know where this fascination with tractors comes from because we don't live anywhere near a tractor. But he, <laughs> anything tractors, super obsessed. So anytime like, um, you know, my parents will ask him like, what do you want to, what do you want to be in school or whatever? He's like, he wants to drive a tractor. Like at daycare, they have this thing. Like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he's like, he wants to drive a tractor. And even though I know he's only two and it doesn't matter in the back of my mind, I was like, I'm like, we're going to change this. <laughs> we're going to steer you into a proper profession. <laughs> I'm like, how much do I want to nurture this love of tractors? They make a lot of money. He'd be good. But again, social conditioning, right? Like, it's like, oh, what are people going to think when my son is like, he wants to drive a tractor? You know, Mm -hmm. nothing wrong with that, but social conditioning. Um, Yeah. As a parent, it's so hard. It's so hard to not pass on our judgments. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 100%. So do you Mm -hmm. have any advice for any mothers out there who maybe are going through the same period in their life or maybe they're just starting out? Like, what would you tell a mom who is just kind of overwhelmed or confused right now? That's a tough one. One thing that I tell myself, and my brain doesn't tell me this, so I have to, you know, manually tell myself is to allow myself to be okay not doing certain things. But I know it's very hard to do that because as a mother, we we want to do this and that. And even when we don't want to do that, we feel like we have to do that. Mm-hmm. So telling myself, I'm hoping that by telling myself, it's okay to not do this. It's okay not to be able to do this. Mm-hmm. Sunday, hopefully, I'll actually be able to rest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's yeah. really great advice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with that, we are going to take a quick break and we will be back with this week's letter. back with our lovely guest Sakura that was such a a fascinating discussion Um, I'm really sad that we had to end it but it's now time for our weekly letter Cookie do you want to take it away absolutely Uh, letter today comes from we didn't get a name but I will start the story Uh, hello Danayan Cookie and guest I'm a mother to four biracial children who are half Ghanaian a quarter French and a quarter Indonesian I have two girls and two boys Three of my children look very similar, but one of my kids has stronger Ghanaian features. She has darker skin and kinkier, coarser hair, while her siblings are fairer and looser textured hair. While my husband and I think she's beautiful, she feels very self-conscious about her looks. She's 15 years old now, and I've noticed that she gets frustrated with her hair texture and seems to be exhibiting lower self-esteem. I'm not really sure what I can do to reassure her or how I can make her feel like she belongs. 
please help me. Yeah, there was no name on this one. That's um, mm. the age, yeah. the age, the 15-year-old. That's a tough age because she's already self-conscious mm-hmm. about everything. And now she's yes. got this on top of. And I mean, as Sakura mentioned, genetics is a very interesting thing. Because mm-hmm. even though they have the same parents, all of them, well, it sounds like there's there's definitely differences in the way they present, even with my kids, actually, um, they they have a lot of similarities, but I can tell that there there slight differences in um, in some of their features. But mm-hmm. this is interesting because all three have so three of them have uh, more three of them have less Ghanaian features, and one is more Ghanaian mm-hmm. than the other. This is very mm-hmm. interesting. What are your thoughts, Sakura? Um, out, out from my experience, because my siblings, we all look different. And, but when, when you look at us, you know that we are all siblings because we have exactly the mm-hmm. same facial. Like we all look the same. It's just the skin color and, and, and the hair mm-hmm. are completely different. And we all have different experience. One thing that my sister told me once was that she, she knows she is Japanese, Afro-Brazilian, but because she looks more Japanese, it's very hard for her to articulate her feelings connecting to her identity. Mm-hmm. Because it, she said it was difficult for her to share her feelings with me because I look more Afro-Brazilian than her. Mm-hmm. She knows that... I'm going through difficulty as well, but she was going through her own difficulty too. Mm-hmm. But she, I guess she was telling herself that she shouldn't complain about it because she has more Japanese feature than me. She must have it easier. Like that was my assumption as well, that my sister, you know, she must have it easier living in Japan than me, but she had her own struggle, mm-hmm. especially because her, the way she looked and, her racial background didn't really match. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know what I would have told her, you know, if she shared that with me back then. I, I may have been like, what are you talking about? You you don't look Brazil- Afro-Brazilian. You mm-hmm. look more like Japanese. Please don't complain about it. Mm-hmm. Right? And that would have been very hurtful. And maybe I said that. And maybe that's why she didn't share that with me. So I would say that... In this case, if I had three kids and they all kind of looked different, because I know they'll be going through different experience, I think I would have, if I was my mom, I wish that she told all of us that it's okay to feel the way we are feeling mm-hmm. and we will have different experience. Yeah. And I think just being told that, validating that it's okay to feel the way she or he's feeling it may you know it may give a little bit of um i don't know give a little bit comfort comfort Comfort. Comfort. that's really good insight because uh we obviously don't know how the other siblings are navigating the world (laughs) or how they themselves are being racialized or experiencing you know an identity crisis um, but the one sentence that sticks out to me is that 
uh, how can I make her feel like she belongs in this family? And I think that you nailed it when you said that you, you, you need to validate how she's feeling, but also reiterate that she is a part of the family and mm-hmm. that the features that she has are because uh, it didn't tell us who, who is Ghanaian and who isn't, but one of the parents has those features. And, you know, mm-hmm. maybe that's something that that's a shared experience or a shared identity that that parent um, can, can have with her. I, I've done that with my daughter, too. Like when she she does not like getting her hair washed and <sighs> blow dried, like it's she cries like five times <laughs> throughout the whole process. And I was telling my older sister this and she's like, yeah, but you used to do the same. You used to hate getting your hair done. You need to mm. you need to tell her that it's okay that the experience is not okay. And I had never thought about that myself. Mm. So I one day I actually told her I was like, "You know what? I used to hate this whole process too. You know, I hated it. I cried all the time, but I I knew that I had to do it because I needed my hair needed to get washed." And it changed the whole experience for her because even now she cries, she still understands that, you know, this is just, this is a, a part of my hair texture and no, mommy is not trying to hurt you, to hurt mm-hmm. you. It's just, this is the type of hair that I have. And mm-hmm. sometimes it can hurt when it's getting That's washed. really good advice. Cause I remember hating and crying and I had a sensitive scalp. I still have a sensitive scalp and, um, I know like I get more frustrated with my girls when I'm doing their hair, the two younger ones, because it's like they cry and everything is a big deal and I get so overwhelmed. But actually probably sharing with them that mommy hated this too and just Mm -hmm. sharing that experience with them probably will give them a little more comfort. And just like that, if she Mm -hmm. just validates that, hey, I understand that you're frustrated. I see that your hair is different. Maybe let's look for somebody who can help us so that you you can manage your hair or I can manage your hair you know, mm-hmm. um, and you do belong in this family. Let's just mm-hmm. find ways to make it sure that, you know, we can take care of it in a way that works for you. Just like Sakura said, validate her feelings, allow her to feel. Mm-hmm. But how hard mm-hmm. it would be for that child to feel, to look and at her she's 15. Like, oh, I look you know? nothing like any of these mm-hmm. people, right? Mm-hmm. 15 was an awful year for me. Oh like, my I, gosh, 15's a horrible year. It was just... <laughs> the worst the worst <laughs> of of my high school years <laughs> and i just because yeah. everything was changing you know you're in transition to adulthood you know school is getting harder you're getting closer yeah. to those exams like it just everything feels like we said it last week the worst thing in the world oh yeah and you know i feel like you said cookie 15 is is such a pivotal age like she needs to feel she needs to have a high sense of self-esteem and confidence so that yeah. she can navigate through these things. And I think as a mother, as a parent, you need to nurture that self-confidence and high self-esteem in her um, to say, look, you look different, but, you know, you should be proud of the person that you are. You should be um, proud of whatever features she has that she she can be be proud of but i mean i don't know if mm-hmm. if that would be helpful i mean sakura you're the person mm-hmm. to ask this because oh, you, no, <laughs> you know one thing 
<laughs> One thing that I, I still remember, um, like 15 years old, yeah, that was horrible for me too. I think it's horrible for everyone. Yeah. Um, my mother told me that I should be proud of who I am, the way I look. And I remember hating. Um, so I remember hating her telling me that because she looks different from me. She doesn't mm-hmm. know what I go through. She doesn't know what this skin color has brought upon my life that she doesn't have to experience. So, and I think it was um like um some kind of, at school, there was like a sports day mm-hmm. where everyone had to run. And, you know, someone told me because I look darker, I should run faster. Um, and my thigh was bigger. Like it's, you know, my body's built a little bit different compared to someone who's poor, uh, pure, pure Japanese. And I told my mom that, and that's when she said, you know, like you should be proud of yourself. Yeah. You have darker skin, so you should be able to run faster. Like she told me that and I'm like, no, I don't run fast. I'm just not a physical person. So uh, now I like myself, kind of. But I think that telling someone to be proud of who they are is something that a person needs to come um, on their own terms. Mm-hmm. Not something that someone can tell them, hey, you should be, mm-hmm. you know, I see what you mean. Or this and that and this and that. But one thing I would say is, you know, I wish I knew more about Afro-Brazilian culture then then maybe I would have been prouder. Yes. Maybe I would have been more like, oh, you know what? I like this and this and this about my culture. I should be proud of myself. There's this famous person that's Afro-Brazilian, but there was nothing like that. You know, there was nothing for me to look up upon and say, I want to be like this person. Like I didn't have my own hero. And for my mother to tell me, you should be proud of myself. Like I had no guidance on why should I be proud of myself? Right. And I just wish that she would have validated me and say, oh, that Mm -hmm. sucks, you know, instead of saying, no, 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 you, you're great. You should be able to run faster. You, you should be proud of yourself. Like there's nothing to be proud of, mom. You know, so that's, that's that's interesting. Like I'm thinking (laughs) now of all the times that I told my child, oh, you should be like happy for X, Y, Z, or you should be proud of X, Y, Z. But uh, again, like unless you are going through the same experience or you have experienced the same thing, it's hard to have that perspective. So that's why it's really it's really cool that we have the opportunity to have you on the podcast today because you can give us that whole perspective. I'm not saying that someone shouldn't say, "Oh, you need to no, be no. proud of something." Yeah, I think no. it's a balance, you know. Yeah, it's a balance. Yeah, like you shouldn't just say it without. Uh, you shouldn't say it to say it like there yeah there should be mm-hmm. context and mm-hmm. understanding and context validation and, understanding. and mm-hmm. yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah well i think sakura <laughs> has the best advice for this one um <laughs> yeah <laughs> we will be right back with this week's back 
everybody. Um, so today's uh, news story comes from a documentary called Deconstructing Karen. So this documentary came out a few months ago. It's currently available on CBC Gem. So for our Canadian uh, listeners, you can go onto the CBC website and actually watch the full documentary. But today we're going to talk about um, one of the questions that's asked in that documentary. And it's causing a lot of controversy. So the documentary covers the story of uh, Race to Dinner. It's a dinner party for white women to learn more about racism, but most importantly, to acknowledge their positionality in the discussion of race. In one part of the documentary, anti-racism educator Regina Jackson asks, how many of you would trade places with a black person in society today? The results, not a single person raised their hand. My question to you ladies is, does this surprise you? Why or why not? Mm -hmm. It doesn't surprise me much. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that it's very easy to say no one's racist. Everyone is the same. We are all the same human, blah, blah, blah. But deep down, I think that most people realize that being a black person is not the same as being a white person. In some meeting, one person said, everyone is the same. I don't see color. We should just be kind to one another. And that came from, you know, probably a good heart. But everyone does not experience the same thing and everyone is not the same. And that the fact that these women did not say that they would place, they would betray the place, Mm -hmm. it just really shows, see, deep down they know too that it's not the same. Mm -hmm. They may say, oh, no, we are all equal. It's easy to say. But in reality, that's not what we see. And it's easy to, you know, just close our eyes and say, oh, that didn't happen to you because you're black. Mm -hmm. That was just an unfortunate event. But at some point, you know, the society, they need to realize, no, that's not true at all. And deep down, I feel that people know that. Well, that's why it's, you know, when when this this woman asked this question and nobody raised their hands. Uh, if you watch the documentary, which I highly recommend that everybody listening to this podcast watch it. Um, people, like some of the people are kind of saying, well, um, they, they can't artic- articulate like why they chose not, like why they said, no, I wouldn't wouldn't trade life with a black person. And the lady, Regina Jackson, says it's because we know that Black people inherently are treated differently in society. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I'm doing a lot of research for, like, on this very topic for a, a, a conference presentation that I'm doing later this year. And there's some very interesting statistics from StatsCan. They, um, if you actually go onto the StatsCan website, you can, like, learn a lot about race in Canada. And one of the things that I found interesting was that of all the people of color that were surveyed in StatsCan the last 
major census, um, most pe- most people of color said that they just dis- they experienced discrimination, um, and when they experience discrimination, it's always like a combination of things. It's never like just the way that you speak or your religion. It's always like your country of origin and your your religion or the way that you speak and the way that you look. Black people were the only uh, group that identified one thing as the reason for discrimination, and that is the color of their skin. No other um, ethnic group identified a single factor as a reason for discrimination. And I find that very interesting because if Black people are saying that they get discriminated for one thing, the color of their skin, what does that say about our society? You know, and the fact that we are today in 2022 having a conversation about this blows my mind. And you have people who will tell you to your face that, you know, we are overreacting when we have these conversations or there is too much of an emphasis on race. But we are saying, we as Black people are saying, you know, I can get discriminated for a lot of things, especially the way that I look. And nobody, no other ethnic group has said that. So I just, I find that really interesting. And I can put the, the link to that article too in the show notes. Um, but Cookie, you've been very quiet. <laughs> I want to hear what, <laughs> what you think. Um, and I'm only playing devil's advocate just so we can get a different perspective here. But just, um, I'm just picturing that room of these women and they've, in they've, if they're having this conversation and they're asked that question. Um, and I'm, I'm imagining them running things through their minds, not necessarily from perspective of, well, I wouldn't want to be black, but from the perspective of, well, I don't really understand what they go through. So it's incredibly mm-hmm. difficult for me to, for them, I'm speaking as a white woman. Um, <laughs> it's incredibly difficult for me to, completely immerse Mm -hmm. myself in that situation because understandably and their heart is in the right place like we've said but they're not quite sure how to execute but so in their minds they're like well I can't completely be uh, be um empathetic or that's not the right word but I can't completely immerse myself into being a black person because I genuinely have no Mm -hmm. idea what they deal with and I genuinely have no idea how to how I would even manage that so I'm not going to put my hand up because it would be almost hypocritical for me to say yeah I'd love to swap but I have no idea what that would look like because if if we if we ask each other right now how, how if we would swap and be a white woman we would be like a hundred percent. I would because yeah, I would be would treated be, differently. Really? Yes. Yeah. And one thing I was thinking was that what if this room was um, the opposite, mm-hmm. you know, a bunch of black women being there and asked, would you swap um, to be a Caucasian person? Would you do it? I think the answer would be different. Mm-hmm. You know, I think more people may. And you know why? Be like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because of white supremacy. So everything mm-hmm. that you said, Cookie, about like women being afraid to answer that question because they can't identify with what it's like to be Black, that is an example 
of white supremacy. Because as women of color, we know what it's like to be a white girl or to be a white woman in society. We know the privileges that uh, white women have in society. We, um, we have seen how society reacts to white women in distress versus women of color in distress. And so it's very easy for us to put ourselves in that situation. The reason that I think white women have a difficult time understanding that concept is because our culture is so ingrainedly white. And so it is hard for them to imagine a world where they themselves are not um, like in like the, the pinnacle of that society. Uh, Sukura, you want to say something? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't want to, you know, say that Caucasian women do not have hard time or go through difficult experience because yeah, I believe course. that every single person goes through a, a, a difficult experience. I think that the different, it's very important for us to distinguish what kind of difficult time mm-hmm. we are talking about. Are we talking about one time thing? Because, the you know, I did that if I was a Caucasian person, let's say that uh, I think that I was discriminated against. Mm-hmm. And I say that. And for, let's say, a Black person to say, no, because you are Caucasian, you shouldn't be discriminated against. I don't believe that. I think everyone at some point in their life will feel have some kind of feeling that. But the difference is intergenerational struggle. Mm-hmm. Was that discrimination just for you? Would your child experience the same thing? Probably not if you are Caucasian. It's also structural or racism. Or other, exactly, structural racism. But it, yeah. If it's a skin color, and if I'm passing that down to, you know, my offsprings, then my offsprings most likely is going to experience the same thing because it's the social structure mm-hmm. that we live in. It's not so much about one individual experience, one individual person had it's about the society. It's like a bigger than just one person experiencing one thing. It's everybody. People that are, yeah, would the people that look like me experience the same thing? If the answer is yes or no, you know, I think we we need to distinguish that when someone well, says, you know, in the I documentary, want, yeah. there's one woman who's blonde, and she says, you know, I've experienced discrimination as a blonde woman. Um, pe- yeah. pe- people thinking that I'm not as smart or that I make stupid mm-hmm. decisions. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I, I understand what she is conveying, mm-hmm. but it's very, it's very hard for people to sympathize with that when her look, the way that she looks, is the standard of beauty in society. So although she may have had a hard time, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about mm-hmm. systems, structures that mm-hmm. make it difficult for you to exist in this world as a person of color. Cookie, you want to say something? No, I, and I don't disagree with you. I, I the levels but uh the levels of struggle, the levels of um, discrimination, challenges, whatever, are always going to be different, though. Like, I'm not going to experience the same thing you experienced, for example. And we talked about this when we were talking mm-hmm. about um, diversity in school. My children here in Edmonton are, like, their schools are so diverse to the point that um, the, the Caucasian person is the minority. Like, it's so diverse. So it's, I, I'm experiencing different things than you are. And, and 
It's a girl then. And then like <laughs> this woman particularly, um, when she talks about her being blonde and like when I, when, and, and we all have Caucasian friends and we know mm-hmm. that there's certain things as women, not POC, anything, just as women that they do have a hard time too. Right. And we have to acknowledge and we can validate that. Yes. A hundred percent. And that woman is mm-hmm. probably right. Nine times out of 10, they probably look at her and go, Oh, and interestingly enough, um, previous job, uh, this boss and I, we went to see this client and, the woman was Asian. To be honest, when I talked to her on the phone and I did not get the Asian accent, I didn't get any of that. So I didn't think she was Asian. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But he was like, oh, her name, she's obviously Asian and she's obviously got, um, uh, she's very s- stiff. Like she doesn't, there's no room for negotiation. And I said, well, we don't know if she's Asian and we don't even know if that's what she's like. <laughs> but when we went to see her, and then once we left and we were leaving, he was like, see, I told you she was Asian and she's stiff and she has no room for negotiation. And it's just, and so in my mind, I was like, but also, did you consider that maybe her position, her job is to be stiff? Yeah. She has to be hard on, on her vendors or whatever. And she can only, she's only allowed this amount of money. And like, you yeah. didn't consider any of that. You're just considering that she's a woman, she's Asian, so she must be stiff. Like, it's like, okay, so you've discriminated against her based on the way she looks automatically not paying attention to the fact that her job might not allow her to have any room for error. Um, Mm -hmm. It just kind of, but see, and I know that, yes, she might not see the same struggles I do, but things like that I made note of. Like, so if she's getting that discrimination, mine must also be coming in at some point. And as it did, I'm an angry black woman. So like, it's just, there's so many different (laughs) ways people struggle and I don't want to dismiss that, but yeah, you're hundred percent right. We're not dismissing that, but Sakura, you're bouncing, you're like ready to say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's a matter of intersectionality too, right? It's not just a black and white. It's, you know, I am a able body. But I am um, like I have so many privileges mm-hmm. in my life. Like mm-hmm. I really do. Mm-hmm. Yet there are some things that I am, um, you know, I see it as uh, what's the word? Like it's not benefiting me. Please cut this part because I, I don't know. That's okay. That's <laughs> the right word. Um, but I think I think that the bottom line is to me is safety. I heard, you know, people saying, oh, I was discriminated against because, uh, okay, let's use the nice um, example because I'm blonde. People usually think I'm like a Barbie and I don't have brain. Mm -hmm. And that's very hurtful. And 100%, I can see that. Like, I want to validate that experience. But my question becomes, so at night, if we are walking in the same neighborhood which which one of us is going to be stopped mm-hmm. by the police? Is that me or is that you? Most likely it would be me, not the, the blonde person who experienced, you know, discrimination and having her own difficulty. I'm like, it's not the individual level struggle that I think what this documentary was mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's more the societal it's societal structure. structure. Like, it, yeah. it's, it's a safety. It's a safety. It's about... You know, like, can we, can we, like, honestly say the same human beings walking in dark alley, but different color of skin, 
would they have the same experience if the police car comes over? I think I think the answer is no. No. Mm-hmm. You know, so when we start discussing about safety and our justice system, yes, I think that's where the difference is. And again, everyone struggles with the different things. I suffer from mental health, and that doesn't mean that you know I that it would be bad for me or anything. No, because people cannot see that I am suffering from mental health, at least for my my experience mm-hmm. um, so I suffer from depression and social anxiety but people cannot see that mm-hmm. whereas for skin color most people can see that mm-hmm. it's the and first thing that you see you know and mm-hmm. it's 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 the only thing that is impossible to change so for example people get discriminated uh, uh, discriminated against based on, you know, where they come from uh, or how they they speak English or French um, or their religion. And those are things that are not, um, they're not finite. They're not uh, concrete, I guess. But when it comes to skin and race, it's impossible for for you to change the way that the, that you look that's why i feel like it's so hard for us to get to a a place in society where you know we're not having to talk about race or we're not having to deal deal with race because it's just it's you can't change you can't change it you can't assimilate race right well, um, you can't I, I i do want to make a point though um that i've been meaning to make for quite a while um i find that in Canada, the race fight is significantly different than the states. Mm-hmm. We have to note that mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. Um, indigenous people of Canada, I think mm-hmm. we have to acknowledge that their struggle is, and I would personally going to go out on a limb and say, is on the same level as the black people struggle in the United States. They are, in, and and I've seen it with my own eyes. I've witnessed it. I've I've heard it. I've watched it happen. And I, I've been in and around them. And especially out here at Alberta, um, mm-hmm. or just out west. I couldn't. I shouldn't even just say Alberta. Out west, um, because there's a there's a huge community. Their community is quite big out here, so it's it's more apparent. Um, and I would love. It's very difficult, very difficult to infiltrate that that society because they're very protective of themselves. Just as Black people and, and other POCs are very protective, we're incredibly protective because we have to be because there's so much coming at us all the time. But sorry, I just wanted to note that because I do appreciate that we do have, um, we are a minority, an extreme minority as people of color here in Canada. And we do face um, incredible wanna- challenges. Karen. I just want to add to that. Um, I, I I know that. Um, I mean, it, it, we're not in the oppression Olympics here. Like, no, 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 most, no, no, no. Most no. people of color are 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 horribly oppressed. Um, but I do want to note in those in those statistics that that the list of statistics that I was listing, black people were the only racial group that was universally seen as negative. So they were the only subgroup of of persons of color 
that was seen as negative by every other group of people. So that's something to keep in mind. Keep in mind. When we're having this discussion is that um, I don't want to minimize the experiences of, of anybody because everybody experiences um, something. Yeah, everybody experiences things differently. Um, what I think is interesting is that it kind of appears as if nobody really wants to be us. <laughs> um, and I think that's, that's, why the, that's why this question is interesting is because why is it that even other people of color do like a view, have this view of black people? Um, anyway, sorry, Sakura, you were going to say something before I cut you off. Oh, no, no. I just wanted to say, like, it's, it's so important for us to acknowledge also the history, the history, yes. the history ties into the social structure. It doesn't happen overnight. Mm -hmm. Right. So for this, the sake of this conversation and the cookie to bring back to your point of indigenous peoples of Canada, there is also a history. Mm -hmm. Right. There is always a history. And again, because uh, I think maybe the listeners too will be like, you know, I'm not black, but I am experiencing this and that and this and that. Mm -hmm. And again, deny, as you mentioned, we are not trying to. We're not trying to say somebody is like. Mm -hmm. No, no, no. And, and that's not no. what I'm and that's not what I'm trying to say at all. That's not what I'm trying to say at mm -hmm. all. I just wanted no. to point out that it's just it, it's it's incredible how much. Uh, how far, but how little we've come yes. in terms of the race. Um, we, we've got so much more to go, um, but I do want to note that there is a lot of, um, there is some level of improvement and we need to acknowledge that as well. And again, I'm just playing devil advocate because we've got two against one here and I got to say something. <laughs> it's not about being against anyone. No, and, and, and I have to agree with you that they are, you know, definitely improvement in the society. I didn't live 50 years ago, so I am not too sure. I don't know what, you know, my great, great, great parents experienced in Salvador Bahia when they were brought uh, as, as a slave. Like, I don't know that. But one thing though, that I would say the more we discuss this thing openly and we know that we have a lot of allies too. And going back to the deny what you first mentioned that, you know, a lot of people say, well, I have gone to the march. I, mm -hmm. I support black life matters. Mm -hmm. I support this and I support that. And it, it cannot just be surf surface level um, thing to say. But I, what I have been witnessing, me personally, and again, this is just my experience, is that it's easy to say that I, I have a lot of Black friends and I support, support Black Lives Matters. But I just want to share one experience that I had um, from a previous workplace, is that we, a student came to me and she said that she does not see any Black History Month display um, on where I work. And I was like, well, thank you so much for bringing that up. And did, did you talk to anyone? And she said she talked to different uh, departments mm -hmm. and that it went to nowhere. So in this case, I know that I have power because I'm an employee. I'm not mm -hmm. a student, I'm an employee. I have power. I know who to talk to. So I talked to someone who 
I saw that was a part of discussion for Black Black Life Matters earlier Mm -hmm. uh, on that month. And I I brought this point up saying, hey, can can we do something to show more, you know, display, at least a display on campus about Black History Month? Mm -hmm. Can we celebrate this? And this person said, and this is a person that's an ally, right? He's an ally, Mm -hmm. he's Caucasian. What he said to me was, Sakura, if we listen to all students and they get, we get all their feedbacks and celebrate everything that they want to celebrate, next thing we know, we will be, we will be asked to celebrate International Hot Dog Day. And I was in shock when I heard this. He was basically saying International Hot Dog Day and Black History Month is the same thing. It's just a student coming to us saying, hey, can we celebrate this? But again, I just want to say that this person, I see it everywhere when it comes to, you know, diversity, Mm -hmm. LGBTQ, Mm -hmm. like all of that. And to me, that was like a moment that I had to be, that I had to compose myself and say, each thing means differently to a person. And just because a person is celebrating something or saying that it's an ally, it does not mean that that person actually understands what Black Black Lives Matter is about. It's not just going to the march. It's not just saying I'm an ally. It's not just saying I'm not a racist. Mm -hmm. It's actually understand the history and context and the social structure. And at that moment, I knew that, you know, I had, I, I was very naive to think that there's so much conversation going on in the society today. We can talk more openly about this, but really, are we having a dialogue that's deep enough Yes, to make any difference? And that is the difference. It's like, how, how, how deep is, this discussion on changing structural and systemic racism um, at at all levels of society. How deep is is that conversation? Because we've all seen like politicians and public figures, you know, denounce racism, march, kneel, um, a lot of performative uh, behavior. And we still have not seen change. You know, we all work in post-secondary. How many uh, senior, and I'm talking VP level, um, EDI professionals, so the the top um, equity, diversity, inclusion officer in your institution, how many of those people are actually people of color? Or are they just white women who are given these opportunities to... um, you, you know, champion these causes. And I know that when we talk about EDI, we don't only mean race. There are other, um, you know, there are other equity-seeking groups out there as well. But this is a, a frustration that I've seen as a Black person that, you know, many people, especially white people, say that they are, you know, they are champions for change and that they want to do the best that they can for people of color. But what exactly does that mean? 
does that mean just going to a march and sending me a message and saying, hey, I heard about this shooting of a, 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 an unmarked, unarmed black person. Are you okay? To actually doing something about it, like using your voice for good and not just like sitting back and, and saying, well, this is the way the world is and trying to comfort me because that's not, that's not bringing the world forward. Everyone is in a different journey. And if I bring um, the point back that Cookie mentioned, when we think of truth and reconciliation, for example, I am doing the best that I can. I am trying to learn as much as I can and unlearn yes. at the same time. Yet, I, am, I don't have a deep understanding of what let's say, indigenous people go through. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. And my responsibility is to, again, educate myself and not not so much to ask um, indigenous person saying, tell me about your experience, because I feel like they don't owe me any explanation. No. They don't owe society any explanation. It's, it's my responsibility mm-hmm. to seek knowledge and realize how much knowledge I don't have how much I have to unlearn. Exactly. Especially but, as, uh, a, in, uh, as a settler, as a colonizer in, in, in this country, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then in that same sense, people that are not um, dark-skinned, I, I want to acknowledge that everyone is in a different journey. They are learning different things. They are trying to do the best, the most some people are doing the best that they can to be an ally yet i don't think that they will be as aware as uh, us because they are not us just like how i am not mm-hmm. an indigenous person i am an invited an uninvited guest to this land mm-hmm. So I think it's like to some extent, sometime I, I tell myself, hey, Sakura, don't be too harsh. Don't be too hard. Go easy. Because I don't want to also lose the momentum that some people are trying to create, trying to understand yeah. the societal Well, you structure. have to meet people where they are, right? You can't like, mm-hmm. you can't go, you can't give it like a PhD level course on race, uh, when and and I think that's why this particular dinner, this race to dinner, is quite interesting because it's a conversation. It's an opportunity for both sides to hear um, what those perceptions, where those perceptions, where those feelings come from. Because you know, although Canada is not the United States, um, we're not that much different um, in in a lot of respects. The way that you know, this country has traditionally treated um, Indigenous people, First Nations people is horrendous. The way that we have tre- treated, um, you know, Asian people, you know, people who tried to migrate here um, and were told they couldn't. Um, you know, I, I'm, I work in immigration, so I can tell you that there were laws that existed that prevented immigration from non-white, um, you know, regions in the world there was a a, a chinese head tax um for immigrants yeah. who are coming here from from china currently you know the fees that people pay to you know come to this country to, to even apply for immigration documents are so prohibitive you know for for many people the there's a lot that 
there's a lot that I can talk about in in that respect, and maybe that's another episode. But you know, we are so quick to say we're not like the U.S., but we have our our own challenges, and and this just proves it. Like the fact that nobody, uh, that nobody wants to walk a day in our shoes, I guess. Um, yeah, and it, it's a, a powerful ideology. I feel like that it, it lives in our society unconsciously that promotes the idea of you know whiteness as the ideal mm-hmm. for the society, mm-hmm. and I think it speaks to power. It comes back to power, mm-hmm. and this is like also you know what I'm trying to be conscious when I am raising my son is the power. The reality is that the power is depend on. The social position and what group we belong to when we look at the society as a whole. Mm-hmm. And I think about this table, um, the the documentary, to me, what it shows is that people are aware of power. Mm-hmm. And people are Whether hesitant to it, give up power. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. 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 But I don't know, Cookie, what do you think? <laughs> I'm all out. I'm all out um, of devil's advocacy here. (laughs) (laughs) All right, folks, we'll be right back for the saddest part of the show. We have to say goodbye to Sakura. We'll be right back. the end of this episode which has been an incredible incredible discussion with sakura and Denai. yes definitely um, it is a wonderful <laughs> wonderful time talking to you sakura getting to know you and we look forward to possibly be having you on again um and for those of you listening out there thank you for listening thank you for being with us today please please follow us on instagram and um mixed motherhood pod and we will if you want to email us anything at mixmotherhoodpod at gmail.com or even DM us on Instagram as well. And we'll be glad to be in touch if you want to be a part of it or you just want to have a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Otherwise, thank you so much and have a great day. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Sakura. Thank you. Bye. The Mixed Motherhood Pod is written and produced by Nanae Belanger and Kudzai Chimanikire. All musical credits belong to Epidemic Sound. Follow us on all platforms at Mixed Motherhood Pod. See you next time.